Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I have a special guest, Arnie Bernstein, who's an internationally published nonfiction writer, writing teacher, editor, and also a writing coach with 20 plus years in the business. He's worked as a business journalist for publications in Chicago and London. He's the author of the book, Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing, which is considered by many historians to be the most thorough account of this event that happened in 1927 in Clinton County. I'm very excited to have him on the show today. Welcome, Arnie. He joins me today from the Chicago area. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast today, Arnie. Well, th- thank you for having me as a guest. I'm always happy to tell this story. Yeah. Well, could you tell me a little bit about yourself, how you first came to be interested in the story of the Bath School bombing? Sure. I had been looking for something to write a, uh, a book about. I was looking for a good, solid narrative nonfiction story. I was just kind of casting my way around the internet, seeing what came up. And there's a wonderful site that I love called Find a Grave, uh, right. which is cemeteries all around the uh, mm-hmm. the world. And um, I'm it's going to sound a little macabre, but I'm, I'm a, something of a cemetery geek. Um, <laughs> it, well, I run. And so I cemeteries are the best tracks there are for running. Well, well, my YouTube channel, I have a lot of cemetery videos. So some of my listeners are probably laughing, saying, well, Michael is too, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they, they're, they're outdoor museums in, in some way, shape, and form. Um, yeah. But uh, it just doesn't decide how Chicago am I. I uh, one of the cemeteries I run in has uh, the grave of Mrs. O'Leary of Chicago Fire fame and mm-hmm. the first grave of Al Capone. They, uh, it became such a tourist attraction. They, when his mother died, they moved his body out west uh, to the wow. western suburbs. But uh, they left, the, they left the stone up. So I'm, that's how Chicago I am. The site Find a Grave, um, I was just going through it. It's, it's an interesting site. I look at it periodically. And there's something called the Bath School Memorial. And I thought, what is this? Right. And I looked at it and I was, oh my gosh, I've never heard of this story about a bombing of a school in 1927 with 38 children killed. I, I, it was like, you know, a sledgehammer to the head. I said, what is this? And I started looking at it. I said, I have to write this story. It just, it just was, there was no way that it was going to, it was so compelling and I I had to do it. Wow. Well, it is quite an amazing story. Uh, A sad one, very sad one, but it's uh, very in-depth when you start digging into it. So the book, I read through it, and it is an extensive amount of detail. I mean, you went into great lengths to interview a lot of the survivors and the the police investigation. So so how much time did you actually spend in Bath when you were researching this? Well, I first heard about the story in 2005. And I went up to Bath uh, to meet with the committee that oversees the museum there. They have, it's called the Bath School Museum, and they, it's it's devoted to that day and everything that happened on May 18th, 1927. I, um, it, the, the committee wow. itself is run by uh, children, grandchildren of, and nieces and nephews of uh, survivors and those who were killed. It's a profound place. Right. They have... The, uh, the original flag that flew above the school that day, clocks, um, mm-hmm. other artifacts, photographs, things like that. Yeah. And I met with them. 
and told them of what I wanted to do. Now, of course, here I was, this stranger outside of Chicago saying, here I am to write your story. Um, took a, Yeah, I mean, it, it, it took them a while to, you know, figure me out. And I, I can't say yeah. I blame them. It's, you know, I mean, who, who am I to come and say, here I am to write your story? But I spent a lot of time there, uh, kept driving back and forth, um, talking to people, looking around. Wow. The uh, There's a cemetery uh, just outside of town with uh, 17 of the victims are buried. Um, it's it's quite a place. The uh, And right. that really gave me a sense of mission when I was there. My first initial initial thought when I found the story yeah. is, oh, boy, this is going to be my in cold blood. Um you know, and I, I was really excited about it. But the first time I stepped into that cemetery and saw all those graves okay. of all those children, I said, this isn't my in cold blood. I have a duty here. I have a duty here to tell this story wow. and tell the story right uh, and bear witness. Well, I, you know, as, as I did, I, I did interview four wow. survivors initially. Um, the first one I interviewed was a man named Harold Burnett, who was in early stages of Alzheimer's. But when you asked him about that day, he knew, you know, he, even through the fog of the Alzheimer's, he knew about that day. Wow. It, wow. You don't forget that. His brother was killed that day. Um, his sisters, you know, were, were there as well. And I, I, uh, three others, Josephine uh, Cushman, who is kind of the star of my book, um, she told me a lot of stuff. Her brother, Ralph, was killed that day. She was 14. Mm -hmm. Ralph was seven. Um and a couple of others as well. And uh, it, 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 you know, this was my initial, um, you know, the, the eyewitness accounts, of course, are the most, you know, are the deepest accounts and give it the most weight. Uh, there was also an inquest that was done uh, about the, you know, after it all happened. You know, we need to tell the story before I tell the story of the inquest. I yeah, think. yeah. Let's get into the story. So could we take us to the timeline of the story? Obviously, the sure. villain in this case why don't we start with him? Sure. That started the whole incident happening. Okay. So what happened was on May 18th, 1927, there was an explosion at the Bath School um, under the north wing of the school. It sort of blew, it was two stories. It blew up like, you know, it shot up and then pan the roof pancaked down from second floor to the first floor. And Instantly, you could hear screams and cries, and it, it was it was heard for miles around the baths, about uh, seven to ten miles outside of Lansing, and it was heard there. It was heard, and much further than Lansing as well. Simultaneously, wow. a fire broke out at the home of Andrew Kehoe, who was a, a trustee on the school board, a local farmer, and nobody knew what was going on. Um, some people who were trying to put the fire out at Kehoe's, did not know about the school blo had blown and, you know, vice versa. Wow. It just seemed like chaos had come onto Bath at the same, at, all at once. Now, Kehoe pulled out of his garage. They could see this big cloud of smoke. And there were explosions coming out of the house, too, um, which I'll get to in a second. But Kehoe came out. And one eyewitness said you could see both sets of his teeth. And he had this look of madness in his eyes and he said boys you are my friends you better get out of here you better go down to the school though what wow. what is he saying there are explosions at the house as the house is burning down they later found out this was dynamite that was laced throughout the house wow. um kehoe drives up to the school uh 
nearly knocking a couple of people down in the process, Emery Hike, the school superintendent, sees him. Now, Hike has been running the rescue operations, and Hike and Kehoe did not get along at all. Hike being the superintendent, Kehoe being the treasurer of the school board, they were constantly fighting. And I've been in, in education for many years, and seeing two people go at it on a school board is is not surprising. Let's put it that right. way. They, you know, there's right. always animosity between you know people on school boards. Yeah, there always he, is. Oh, there always is. And uh, but <laughs> he pulled, Keo pulled up, and he said, you know, and and Hike, as much as he hated Keo, he realized they needed help. So he said to Keo. We need your help. We need your truck. We need to get ropes and ladders so that we can help rescue these kids. And Kehoe looked at him and said, okay, I'll take you with me. And Hyde got this look of horror on his face. He said, you know something about this, don't you? At that point, Kehoe took a gun out of his, uh, you know, took out a gun, fired it into the cab of his truck. Uh, some say that he wrestled with uh hike over this. Some said it was a rifle. Some say it was a pistol. Regardless, it was a gun. He fired into a cache of dynamite. It blew the truck up. Now, wow. taking Kehoe and Hike with him, now what Kehoe had done, too, was pack the cab of the truck with old rusty nails and rake heads and, you know, screws, things like that, and it shot out like shrapnel. Wow. And it killed four other people, including a boy who had, you know, escaped unharmed from the school and the local uh, mailman whose leg was you know, more or less severed in the explosion. It's right, right. horrifying, horrifying story. And at that moment, that's when everybody knew that Andrew Kehoe was behind the explosion at the school and setting fire to his own home. Wow, that is, uh, he's just, it was just a crazy, crazy set of circumstances. I don't think anybody could really get their head around it when it no, was No, and down, even, you know? even, you know, 95 years later, it's still hard to wrap your mind around the horror of it all. What Kehoe had done, Kehoe was uh, a master electrician. And because he was a master electrician, he was also very handy at repairing things. So he volunteered to repair things at the school. And wow. They gave him a key and he had 24-hour access to the school. Nothing unusual about this at all. Um, And in fact, there was an incident where there was uh, one winter when they started firing up the furnace, it turned out a hive of bees had built, you know, the bees had built their hive next to the furnace. And so when it warmed up in the winter, the the bees started, they started flying around the school and it was was infestation of bees in the middle of winter. They tried twice to get rid of these bees. It didn't work. And they said to Keo, can you do anything? Keo said, I'll try. And he went down and whatever he did, nobody knows what he did. He was able to get rid of the bees. Wow. So, and he was always repairing things. And so Mm -hmm. there was no reason to think that anything funny was going on. But Keo was also, in addition to to being a master electrician, and keep in mind too, there's no electricity in Bath at this point. I'd like to say that Roaring Twenties were right past Bath. Um, Anybody who had electricity had a generator. Um, Keo had a generator in his house. The school had a generator. And Keo was also the go-to man in town for dynamite. And this may sound strange to our modern sensibilities, but it's not. Um, wow. Because uh, stump blasting. I'm sure some of your, your farming listeners will, will know this one. It's if there's a, a stump or a, you know, a tree stump or a, a boulder or something in your field, uh, your farm field, how do you get right. rid of it? You can't have your horse pull it out or kill the horse. 
You can't right. have your, your, your tr it'll wreck your truck. So you blow it up. Today we have gr giant grinders to do this. But back right. then they, they would stick in, you know, dynamite and blow it up. Um, and because Kehoe knew his way around dynamite, knew his way around electricity, he was the go-to guy to be doing this. So right. there was nothing right. unusual about him having all this dynamite. What they believe he did was secrete this stuff in the middle of the night, um, you know, wire it to blow up at, at the specific time he had it set to blow. And he ultimately, there were 500 pounds of dynamite found under the school building itself. Now, the North Wing, the, the blue, they estimated they had 100 pounds gone off. Uh, for some reason, uh -huh. the other 500 didn't go off. Um, it could have been that the initial explosion ripped wires or he could have misjudged the timers or something like that. But for whatever reason, the other 500 did not go off. It was, mm -hmm. I, it, but it had it gone off. I mean, Beth would have been desert, gone. I mean, Beth just would have been wiped off the map. Wow. Yeah. yeah it, it's, a... it's incredible what, what one man did. Yeah, I was uh, reading the chapter in your book about how they found he had slid rain gutters up into the ceiling of the basement and hidden right. them, and they were filled with dynamite. And he was able to slide dynamite into the dark right. cavities he also underneath used some, the school. Right. He also used something called pyrotol, which was a World War One explosive used on the battlefields and was sold as war surplus. And oh. yeah, I mean, nobody thought to look for this stuff, but you wouldn't think to look for this stuff. Um, <laughs> at one point, you know, the janitor noticed that there was a trap door that was open. Um, he didn't know why it was open, but he closed it. Maybe, maybe it just opened on its own. Maybe Keo had left it open. We don't know. Um, wow. There was a lock that was broken about two weeks before the uh, bombing. But again, that could have been anything. But, right. you know, if and of course, afterwards... You know, when they after the when they they started looking in the in the basement to see if there was additional explosives and they were shining their um, flashlights, they could see now they could see the, the wiring. Now they could see it, it hidden in the dark recesses. Nobody would think to look for that stuff. Yeah. If you're not looking, I mean, you don't, who would suspect anybody would do that? Exactly. To school? I mean, exactly. Know, like, wow. Yeah, when you were working on the book, did you find it difficult to kind of understand the mindset of Andrew Kehoe? I mean, <laughs> that's a really interesting question, and <laughs> I could not penetrate his mind, which is probably a good thing that I couldn't do it. Um, but the, the and the common question I get is why? Why did he do this? Now, the story that's I think become part of the mythology is that he was upset about his taxes. He, di right. he didn't like paying his taxes. He often said that the schools, the expensive school taxes are ruining him. You do not blow up a school because you're upset about your taxes. I don't know anyone who likes paying yeah, taxes yeah. and we don't blow up schools. Um, he yeah. was by, you know, legal definition, a psychopath. Now yeah. we, you know, th psychopath, we think, you know, the guy in the movies with the, the chainsaw running around. Uh, but it's a real you know, psychological condition. Now, there was a man named Robert Hare. He's a Canadian psychiatrist who studied psychopathy in Canadian prisons, dealing with the, the worst of the worst people. Mm -hmm. And he came up with something called the Hare Psychopathy Checklist. And where, and again, a psychopath could be anything from an office bully to a madman who wants to kill children. 
Right. You know, and there, what are some of the things that Kehoe scored high on? Was uh, manipulative, uh, unwilling to accept uh, responsibility, uh, able mm-hmm. to lead a, a double life. Um, all these elements that they, they go into the, the unhinged mind, Kehoe scored really high on. And of course, we understand this in retrospect. But yeah. the frustrating problem is there is no why. A mm-hmm. rational mind wouldn't do this. You know, it's, it's yeah, you know, and, like any, you know, and a common question I get is what, is there any link to other killers in the, you know, in the, the mass school killings of today and the other, you know, shootings in malls and things like that. And the only thing I can find is that it's just something has gone wrong in the mind that does not have the switch that says you don't do this. It's their means of yeah. self-expression, you know, for lack of a better term. Yeah, no, the, I did see online when I was looking up on history on him, and I don't remember if you included it in the book that he had had a head injury somewhere in St. Louis. Yes, yes. He had studied electricity at Michigan State University, which, or no, excuse me, Michigan, yeah, no, Mich- it was Michigan State College, eventually became Michigan State University. Um, and he went to St. Louis and studied at a school there. Now, he, somehow or other, he was zapped and was in a coma for a couple of weeks. And came mm-hmm. out of it, and you know, worked as a, in a, you know, as a power linesman and various things around the Midwest before to returning to Michigan. Did that zap affect him? There's absolutely no Who way knows? to know. Yeah. There's no yeah. way to know. That's the thing. Oh, there's so many things we don't know because you know there's probably no autopsy done on him. So. Oh no! Yeah, he was blown to pieces. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he could have had a brain tumor. He could, there's could have been a lot of things that we today's forensics probably would have. Able right. to find something biological if there was anything there. Right. The sh- now the yeah. shooter at uh, the the Texas Tower in 1966, Charles Whitman, when they did the autopsy on him, they found there was a a, a small tumor pressing on part of his brain. Did it? Yeah. Make him do what he did? We don't know, but you know it's conceivable. Kehoe, there's just no way to know. Yeah. So you interviewed some of the survivors or relatives of the victims in your research. Right. You mentioned that. Any any of those stories kind of stand out to you most? Yeah. Oh. Um, it's interesting. There's a woman I interviewed, um, name was, uh, Josephine Cushman at the time. Um, Josephine Cushman Vale. Mm-hmm. Um, she and I became pretty close too. Um, we got to be good friends as a result of this, but she told me some of the most graphic stuff in the book. Um, and I interviewed her. She was in her nineties at the time and her brother, is it, her brother, Ralph was killed in the explosion. She wow. was 14. Yeah, he was right. seven. And, the things she told me were just, and, and they're in the book. They ended up in the book. Um, it was awful, as awful can be. Um, and I felt terrible asking her this stuff because I'm, I think I'm thinking to myself, she's in her 90s. Why upset her? You know, I, I wasn't willing yeah. to, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't worth a book to upset this woman. And I said, you know, you don't have to tell me this stuff if you don't want to. And she stopped and she said, no. Her voice was very strong. She said, no. I'm not going to be here much longer. I want people to know what happened. And, well, that's great. I'm glad yeah, she was bold she, enough oh, to do that because, yeah. I mean, it is pretty gra- graphic detail, and you guys should read the book. Um, and I'm going to include his book in the description of this video, just saying that as we go along with this interview right, here. Right. But definitely check out Ann Arnie's book here because the, the extensive detail from these uh, survivors and the people that he interviewed with personal accounts is just amazing how he interweaves the story and keeps it together so during the chaos of the aftermath what i found interesting in the 
story and obviously it was chaos people who didn't know we were pulling bodies out right and that some of the children were originally believed to be dead and then they discovered uh, like an hour later they were they were alive uh, yeah one of the cases of josephine one... england josephine england and dean sweet yeah were two Dean's of them an interesting that, uh, case yeah dean they thought was dead for sure and yeah. then he blinked to something and they realized he was alive they were he was in the they had a temporary morgue on the lawn in front of the school. And some of the kids actually, they were identified by their shoes. Um, wow. But yeah, the parents could recognize the shoes and that's how they identified their children. It's, I can't, I can't even yeah, because imagine. They were coming out of, they were coming out of this um, building covered with dust and dirt and they were right. all, everybody looked like a ghost. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean yeah. one of, one of the people I interviewed said that her, she and her brother, her older brother said to me, I guess I know what we're going to look like when we're old. And she said, what do you mean? He said, look at your hair. Their hair, they, they were white. Their hair was white from all the wow. dust. Um, there wasn't fire or anything at the school. It was just dust and debris because the dynamite yeah. didn't start a fire. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they thought that Dean was dead, but he moved, he blinked, and they realized he was alive. Um, his heart was beating really fast. They thought his heart was going to kill him. Yeah. And he was in the hospital for a long time. And they treated him very fragilely. They thought he was going to, uh, they thought he was going to die. Uh, but he survived. He lived in well into his eighties too. But wow. he had, throughout his life, he had, I guess he still had shrapnel in his head and periodically pieces of wood would work their way out of his head. Um, you wow. get these purple marks. What yeah. an amazing, you know, um, traumatic experience. And then, yeah. The, the interesting thing that, you know, the uh, Kehoe's truck bomb goes off after the school bombing and is, and it wasn't over yet because the Lansing police officer, James O'Brien and uh, William Clock, sheriff's deputy, they find the second stash of dynamite in the coal room on the East end. And then right. they run out, you know, so. Yeah. They had to stop. And, the and that rescue. stopped everything for, right. you know, they had to stop the rescue, you know. Yeah. Now with um, Kehoe's farm, they just let it burn. They said, yeah. you know, they just let it burn. It, that was fine because they had to concentrate on the school. The, yeah, they, they had to stop the, the rescue efforts because they couldn't risk the school being blown, um, dynamite going off. And so they actually got, there were two kids who were small enough and knew the basement of the school. One of them had, you know, in fact, that morning he had helped put uh, put things away for the uh, for the summer because it was, it was one of the last days of school, and right. so he knew that basement inside and out. So the the police gave him like a quick lesson in how to how to cut wire uh, that was attached yep. to dynamite. And this was one brave kid, and they went with the the uh, flashlights and they would look for caches of dynamite and he would clip it with the wires. Um, they were still finding dynamite well into the summer. All and, the way into the summer. All the way wow. into the summer, and in fact, when they were rebuilding the school, one woman uh, saw beneath the floorboards and in plain sight more dynamite, and they oh had stopped it. The, yeah, I mean, it, it's incredible that they missed it. Um, they also found a rug that was uh, soaked in gasoline and wood chips around it, apparently hoping it would be an accelerant or something like that. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and then I, you know, in your book, you detail how the the neighboring windows of houses nearby blew out 
when the yeah. bomb went off at the school. So it was, I mean, imagine if the whole thing had gone off, it would have just been, it would yeah. have probably leveled the city. Oh, yeah. And Bath's not a big city. When you think about the quintessential small American town, that's Bath. It still yeah. has a, uh, there's no, still no stoplight. It's a, it's a four-way stop sign is the center of town. And a lot of the buildings from the 1920s still stand. And a lot of Bath looks like it looked in 1927. Yeah, so, I drove through it uh, last weekend to check it out in preparation for this uh -huh. interview. And it was, it, I saw the park and, and all of that. And it's, uh, it's still small, you know. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's not a metropolis at all. No, you know? not, a, not in the least. The, uh, the park that you're talking about, uh, James, Cousins, James Cousins Memorial Park, and then James Cousins was the senator, uh, Michigan senator, and a wealthy, wealthy man. He invested early in, with a guy named Henry Ford um, and wow. made a fortune, um, millions of dollars, which today would be way past millions of dollars. And so he paid for the, the rebuilding of the school, and they renamed it uh, from Bath Consolidated School to the James uh, Cousins Agricultural School. Uh, now, the building wow. out, you know, it, it, it was built. It was rebuilt in 1927, and a building like that can only last so long. They, it, yeah, was, it, was it finally outlived its usefulness. Yeah, it outlived its usefulness, and yeah, when it was torn down, though, it was a controversial thing. People, it was like you know tearing down a cathedral or something like that, and you know people thought it should be turned to a library or an assisted living center or something, but right. it was torn down, and you know, they they built a new school across the street anyway. And uh, mm -hmm. a new grammar school, and then a high school was a little bit further down the road. But it, it, the park is a beautiful space. It's it's occupies you know again what was once the property of the school, and you can actually see cement uh, posts of the original foundation uh, poking out in the lawn, and the oh. cupola that was on top of the the original school building is at the center of the park. I um, mean, roughly the same yep. area it would have been, and there's. Uh, Boulder with uh, a plaque on it with all the names of the victims, and mm -hmm. there's a Michigan State historical marker there. Um, it's it's a quiet and really beautiful place. There's bricks with the names of all the victims uh, surrounding yep. the cupola, and there's a church on the edge of the park. It's a Methodist church, which actually is still the original Methodist church that was there and, uh, wow. in 1927. And there's a plaque inside that um, with all the victims' names. And this plaque was donated by uh, uh, Emery Hike's widow. Let's talk a little bit about the requiems that, that came following. I mean, we had funerals. This town had to have be, be completely in a state of shock after oh, this. Yeah. And, of course, you know, and the, and the event happened on a Tuesday. Was that right? It happened on a Thursday. I believe it was Thursday. a Thursday. Okay, yeah. Thursday. So by Friday, they had funerals like almost round the clock for three yeah. days. It's yeah, like... and they there's only so many funeral parlors. So they, yeah. they started doing them in houses. Um, people were having their funerals in, in houses in the front parlors. Not unusual, you know, for 1927, certainly. But, you know, the, right. the funeral homes in uh, – Lansing were also handing, handling the funerals. And of course, when they buried them, as I say, 17 of the victims of the children, I think a couple of adults who were killed, uh, mm -hmm. were also buried at, uh, it's, what's it called? Pleasant, Pleasant Hill Cemetery. Yeah, and Pleasant Hill. And there's also Pleasant five Hill. of them at Rose Cemetery. Rose I, I Cemetery, yeah, which, um, just yeah. Out, yeah, just outside of Outside town. of Bath, yeah. Right. So you can't, I mean, it was a busy place. Yeah. Um, you know, and they, they actually had the, they had to do the funerals in shifts. 
so that people could attend, you know, funeral of their kid and then the funeral of another kid. It was, and one of the ministers who was delivering eulogies, his own daughter had been killed. Now, what complicated matters too was that people wanted to see what had happened and people were pouring into Bath. There were an estimated 50,000 people who came to Bath that weekend and in the days to follow. Keep in mind, this is before the interstate. It -hmm. would take some time to get there. And the streets of Bath were packed. I mean, you said, you know, if you've ever been to Bath, you know, 10, 15 cars, that place, that's a traffic jam. I I can't even conceive of 100 cars in there, let alone, you know, 50,000 people. And they were roaming the streets. Um, People could not get by to get to the funerals. People couldn't hear the funerals because there was so much noise outside. People were not, you know, they, they were ghoulish almost. There was... One case where a woman knocked on the door and said, I want to see the dead body. Wow. Yeah. It, it, the wish was not it's granted, totally, of course. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, it, so it, many ghoulish, yeah, there's so much ghoulish type of behavior was suddenly happening with these people. Yeah. And, that it, were visiting, it, it, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's you know, and weird as it is, that's not unusual. Um, I, I live in Chicago. And I'm of yeah. the generation where uh, the, the boys were killed by John Gacy. And wow, okay. I have some friends who were that area. In fact, one of my friends, her, her, one of her best friends was one of the victims. And they said afterwards people were driving past the Gacy house just to see it. And when the house was mm-hmm. torn down, people were coming with mason jars to scoop up dirt. as like weird souvenirs. Um, yeah. You know, so it, what happened in Bath that weekend, it's unfortunately not unusual. Mm-hmm. People want to see this stuff. I don't, you know, it's... I don't understand it. um, When I was researching the story here, I was checking different papers, and we have access in our library here, the Battle Creek papers, and they covered the story. And then I saw a clipping that they had flown two reporters out of Kellogg Airfield out of Battle Creek to Bath. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think they flew out that day. And then I was reading in your book that there was newspaper, there was a whole house at this barn that was set up for all the newspaper reporters that had come in from all over. Right. Yeah. An interesting fact, story about the Toledo Blade reporter who crashed his airplane, survived, and then got it. Yeah. Hitchhiked to Jackson and got on a car. I mean, well, he, they was determined to get there. Yeah. Know? And in fact, Chicago, the Chicago Tribune was able to get to Bath. They hired one of the top newsreel guys in in uh-huh. the country. Um, he was able to get some newsreel footage. And actually, this is on YouTube. And you can see actually fly, a plane flying overhead. Oh. And he, they were able to get this footage, get it developed. And 24 hours later, it was being shown in Chicago theaters. Now, that's internet speed in 1927 time. Wow. And yeah, that that's is. Like, that's, and, um, but some people told me it was the first time they'd ever seen an airplane. Um, and, yeah. seen, and one person thought it was, they, were, they were being bombed from an airplane above. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it was 1927, you know, so it's yeah. like, you know, it wasn't air travel wasn't what it is today. It was all exactly. small commuter type planes. So and not, not everybody got, had an automobile either. Automobiles were still pretty new. Yeah, I noticed that. And you stuck you stuck to the historical reference. They called them machines. Right. In the book. So I, I thought that was uh, historically accurate. I thought no, this is this is really well. Well written. He didn't like Thank convert you. it into modern day language. It was thank you. Yeah, I, I wanted to keep it in in of its times without you know. Yeah. 
it throws you the first time you see it. It's like he took his machine. It's like, wait a minute. Okay. And then you get the idea that like he's, that was how they described it at the time. And that's exactly. what you, you really should, you know, you got to carry out, you know, what was being, you know, how it was being described. So have you written any other history books? Um, yeah, a few. Um, I've done some history books here in Chicago. Um, I did a book on Chicago and the movies called Hollywood on Lake Michigan. Oh, okay. And uh, I did a book on Chicago's connections with uh, Lincoln and the Civil War. It's called The Hoofs and Guns of the Storm. It's it's considerable oh, okay. too. It's and and I edited a volume of, of you know Carl Sandburg. Well, there's another person who lived in Michigan, mm-hmm. who lived in around the New Buffalo area. But he was uh, in the 1920s. He was the movie critic for the old Chicago Daily News. They it, it, when being a movie critic was a new thing. He was sort of the Roger Ebert of his day. And mm-hmm. Roger Ebert, bless his heart, wrote the introduction to that book as well. So I edited that and added context for it and such like that. So that that was a real, that was a fun project. And my book after the Bath Massacre book was, it was called Swastika Nation, Fritz Kuhn and the Rise and Fall of the German-American Bund. Um, and I like to, my, my elevator pitch is it's, it's about American Nazis in the 1930s and the people who beat them up. Um, which <laughs> which was a, uh, which, and that one has a Michigan connection too with a, Good old Henry Ford um, and Fritz Kuhn, who was this self-styled Fuhrer who led this Nazi group called the German-American Bund. He was a former Ford employee um, as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it, it's got a wild cast of characters. It's, uh, you know, Walter Winchell and Fiorella LaGuardia and Edward G. Robinson and the boys of the Jewish mafia. And uh, it's it, and Nazis. Well, um, it's, well it's, I think in Chicago history story. in general is just a cast of characters, Al Capone and all those other crazies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm a history nut, obviously. You know, I, I like narrative nonfiction because you, you tell a real story. and But yep. you make you make a story like that, you know, come alive. Um, and that was part of the challenge for Bath Massacre was, you know, obviously I wasn't born in 1927. Um, but I right. had to make it seem like it was happening for the reader. Yeah, and you really you did a great job with just getting people to understand the time as well as thank you, thank you, know, you. the personal accounts of uh, the sequence of events, and, and of course you're dealing with different eyewitnesses accounts don't always align with that, so you have to kind of take it all and put it, put your own idea together what actually right. happened, you know? Right, you know, and but, the, the the scene of the the scenes of the explosion and the aftermath, I actually didn't like short paragraph bursts, as I'm sure you know, because I was trying to capture the chaos. Um, yeah. there's no through timeline because I don't, you know, th- there's just no way you can have a through timeline of that other than, you know, when he, you know, the school blowing up and then, you know, right. And then blowing up his truck, you know, but I mean, it was out of complete chaos and things were going on simultaneously. Um, one of the pieces I used to write the book was an ink, uh, an inquest report. Now, you know, it was a crime. There's a legal document after right. a week after it happened. They held an inquest to uh, the the point was to see had uh, Kehoe killed Hike. That was that was the point. That was the official um, official mission. But the real mission was to find out what happened that day, what led up to that, you know, what was behind Andrew Kehoe, all this stuff. And it, it was a big fat thing, but it provided me with all sorts of stuff, dialogue. Um, scenes, inner thoughts. I mean, there, there, I have inner thoughts of people that um, I pulled directly, you know, so-and-so said, you know, I was thinking this so I could put it in the book that, you know, he thought to himself. Um, yeah. 
which is you know great for you know a narrative nonfiction writer that that's that's a goldmine of stuff. Um, yeah, I saw they, that they had interviewed over well over fifty plus people or more. Right. There was a lot, and of... it's interesting they they couldn't you know the 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 members of the the jury they were all from Bath, but they picked people who did not have kids because okay. they didn't you know even if you know I mean everybody knew somebody was killed, um, mm-hmm. and if you had if you had children in your family. Chances right, are you had a right. child who was killed. So they picked adults who did not have children um, or specific connections to the kids who were killed. And uh, begin, it would be more fair, which is, mm-hmm. you know, they you know to their credit, they really wanted to get at the heart of the matter. They didn't yeah. want their own prejudices and their own preconceived notions. They wanted to know what happened. And this inquest is available online, too, um, and well worth uh, – anyone's time if they want to read it yeah and i always i can imagine that they probably at least the the, the police officers and sheriff's department were i mean they were being told kehoe did it but at the same time they might have been thinking well maybe there's other conspirators involved and right yeah he's just other, one of them you know right you know? i mean because when you think about how one person could pull this off right is, exactly. is incredible i mean he, you know he, he was a mad genius in his own way yeah Totally, um, totally big villain in the history of Michigan. That's for sure. Oh yeah, and the the thing is, this was totally forgotten. Um, yep. And you know, I mean, and the question is, why was it forgotten? Well, first of all, we didn't have you know CNN and the twenty four hour news cycle then, um, right. or the internet or anything like that. Secondly, I mean, it made it made national news. Obviously, New York Times, Chicago. You know, it made you know, mm-hmm. overseas news. But three days after it happened, Charles Lindbergh took off for Paris. Right. And suddenly people weren't interested in Bath anymore. Everybody wanted to talk about Charles Lindbergh and Lucky Lindbergh. Yeah, the whole Charles Lindbergh is in the headlines and then the Bath story suddenly starts getting smaller and smaller. And yeah. it, and personally, I think that was probably the best thing that could have happened. Um, they yeah. left them alone. I mean, still people were still coming in, you know, the, the, you know these ghoulish right. tourists. But for the most part, the media left them alone. And – People could process as such as they could. Um, I mean, it's a hard thing to process losing, you know, a generation of children. Um, yeah. Some people moved out of Bath. They just couldn't take it and they just moved um, yeah. and left. Someone told me that parts of Bath seemed like a ghost town. And right. they they d- were rebuilding the school. Um, they all, they, all they did was rebuild the North Wing. That's all they really had and, and make some repairs to the major part of the school uh, that was still standing. So they held classes in the um, in the downtown area, you know, in the the grocery store, uh, the pharmacy, all those places, any place they could get. It was sort of like a campus. Wow! And one of the survivors told me uh, there was a particularly windy day, and a door slammed, and it was loud, and everybody just took off instinctively wow. because it wow. sounded, you know, it sounded like an explosion to them. Yeah, I can imagine the whole everybody was probably very on edge after that for years. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, for years. Yeah. So, well, tell me about uh, you. You mentioned that you have a website and perhaps some other places where people can find your book. You sure. want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. I um, mean, you can find all kinds of info on me, and probably more than you need. Um, www.arniebernstein.com. A R N I E B E R N S T E I N. Um, there's also a Facebook page for the uh, for the Bath Massacre book. Um, Easy enough okay. to find. And if you want to, I'm on Twitter at Real Arnie B. 
And that's it for my social media. I'm, I'm okay. All right, great. Yeah. So, well, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time to be on the show today. It was really fascinating and it got a lot of uh, insight and details. It's really always wonderful to talk to the author that spent so much hard work piecing well, together you. this type of a story because it was it was a challenge. I can imagine. I mean, trying yeah. to find put together this story after so much time and. Uh, and there were so many people involved. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, thank, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. Well, that's going to conclude today's episode with an interview with Arnie Bernstein, the author of Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing. Today's episode was more of a central Michigan story. However, Clinton County is right next to Ingham County, and Ingham was part of the original 12 or so lower counties that were organized that comprised Southwest Michigan, at least as far as the parameters of my podcast. So as this story impacted both counties, I thought it was worthwhile to include it. Plus, there were a lot of connections to a lot of the counties all over Michigan because it was a a big story and a big event in Michigan history. And as I mentioned, there were even reporters that went to Kellogg Airfield and flew out to Bath as soon as they heard about the event. And there were reporters that came from Jackson and all over the state. So it was definitely a very dark chapter in Michigan history, but it's an interesting story nonetheless. If you'd like to check out my YouTube channel, I'm going to include a link to a video that I did on the Bath Massacre that includes a lot of individual biographies on the victims. So be sure to check out the links provided below in the description of this episode. So I hope you'll join me next time as we take another journey into Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.